0: this: Thank you, Pastor Mike, for reading that. That is the passage we're going to be studying this morning. Again, let's just ask God to guide us through our time together in His word. Lord, you command us to gather together, and it's good for us to gather together. So here we are. and we pray that as we focus in on what you have given us, your word, that your word would change us, encourage us, lead us in repentance. We thank you that you've given us this word and we pray that you would again take away the human element that can be a distraction in all of this. We want you to speak to us, not some guy standing behind a pulpit. So I just pray that you'll use me according to your will. Please bless us during this time now, in Jesus' name, amen. So the news has been about Russia and Ukraine, and we're wondering what the president or leader of Russia is going to do at any moment. It's as if he doesn't have enough land already or enough resources. It appears that he wants more of a kingdom, He wants his domain of rule to extend. He wants his realm to go out further. And so we're kind of watching with anticipation. What's going to happen? Is he going to aim to press into another area and exercise his authority? Is he going to aim to conquer Ukraine? It's all about kingdom and all about territory. All that a man can rule over. The way that he can exercise his own power and authority. When you think about this present-day illustration of a kingdom that is expanding, we read Jesus' first words last week in the Gospel of Mark, where he said in Mark 1, verse 15, he said, The time is fulfilled. An era is coming to an end, and a new era is beginning. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel." And as we looked at that term, kingdom, throughout the gospels, we realized that it involves a ruler who is exercising authority in a domain or in a realm. And what Mark does for the next bit of chapter one and then into chapter two is he shows more and more about what this kingdom is like and what this ruler is like. What is this reign all about for Jesus to be able to rule and reign? So. Right after Jesus announces the kingdom is at hand, we see him preaching in a synagogue. And the people were spellbound with his authority and the way that he taught. Right while he's in the middle of his sermon, a man starts blurting out, causing a disruption. And Jesus knows that this man is possessed, the text says, by an unclean spirit. And so Jesus speaks to that man and says, be silent and come out of him. And the people who were there realized this was a demonic presence here in that man. The demon left. Jesus exercised his authority in that realm. After that, he goes to Peter's mother-in-law's house. This woman is sick with a fever. And so he goes into the house. And he heals her, and not only does he heal her, but she's rejuvenated right away so that she's able to carry on with her hospitality there. And then that evening, all kinds of people in the area bring their sick and oppressed, and those who had been oppressed even by demons, it says. So that was miracle number two. We finished last week with a third miracle, and it seems as though these miracles are beginning to almost function like a crescendo, get more and more difficult. There's a man who comes to Jesus, he defies the Jewish tradition by coming within the 50 paces that a person was supposed to keep from Jesus if they had leprosy. This man had this contagious disease and approached Jesus and asked him, Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I will, and he reached out and touched the unclean man and showed again that his rule and his reign is powerful, it's extending out, and he showed that he was able to heal the man. Now, that leads us into chapter two. Chapter breaks can sometimes form barriers that shouldn't be there, and I think this chapter break shouldn't be there. There's a fourth miracle that Jesus moves into. But as we move into this miracle this morning, there's some background information that might help us even appreciate what's taking place here. You remember at the beginning of our study in Mark, Mark made two declarations about who Jesus is. The first declaration was that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, a Messiah is a deliverer who comes. And not only was he given the title Messiah, but he was also given the title the Son of God. So here is Jesus who is called the Deliverer who is coming and he's also the Son of God, meaning he has divine essence, he's God in the flesh, and the Old Testament has this drumbeat that keeps going, that the Messiah is coming, that the Son is going to come. And the religious leaders knew about this. One of the passages that we're most familiar with about the son that's coming is Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. It's one of our Christmas verses. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And notice what's characteristic about this son. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And now notice this, of the increase of his government, of his kingdom, and of peace, there will be no end. So here's the drumbeat that keeps sounding in the Old Testament. A Messiah, a deliverer is coming, and he's going to be a son, and he's even called Mighty God, and of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end to it. It will be eternal in nature. So here's Mark claiming that Jesus is the Messiah, and he heals this leper. Now after the sermon last week, a friend was talking to me, and asked if I had been familiar with the miracle secret. There's something called the messianic secret. There's also this miracle secret. Uh, A man by the name of Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, he's a Jewish scholar, has written about this, that throughout the the history of Israel, the rabbis and scribes came to believe that there were certain miracles that could be done and accomplished by prophets, like Elisha and Elijah, they were doing miracles, raising an axe head that floats up to the top of the water. Um, There were also miracles that would only be characteristic of the Messiah who would come. And in Jewish tradition, it's not in biblical tradition, but it's in, the, it's in the Jewish faith, if you will, that the miracle that the Messiah would perform or the miracle that only the Messiah would be able to perform was the cleansing of the lepers. And so if this is taking place and if this is real, the, the scribes and the rabbis are starting to hear about this teacher up around Galilee who is healing powerfully, and then this third miracle that Mark gives is this miracle where Jesus has powerfully healed a leper. Now the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the priests are asking themselves the question, Was this a true healing? If it is, we have to go through Leviticus 13 and 14, which talks about how they were supposed to treat lepers and leprosy. But if it's a true miracle that has taken place, in their mind, if they've come to believe this miracle secret, they would have to say that this miracle then is of the Messiah? So, the leper has been cleansed. Could the Messiah actually be on the scene? Was it truly a miracle? All right. well in Luke's gospel, Luke adds a little bit more of picture here to what's taking place in this scene. In Luke chapter six, I just want you to know this, Mark doesn't include this, he says this, on one of those days as he was teaching, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Jesus is teaching, And right there are all of these religious leaders because they're curious about who Jesus is. And if they're holding on to that Jewish tradition that Fruchtenbaum is talking about, they're wondering, could this guy be the Messiah? All right, that leads us into our study this morning. Four points this morning. I'll give them to you as we go through. Point number one is simply this. Jesus meets a paralytic. Jesus meets a paralytic. It says in verse one that when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So Capernaum is up around the region of the Sea of Galilee. And he had healed the demon-possessed man in the synagogue in Capernaum. News had traveled. Apparently he had moved away from that city, still in that region, but he comes back to the city and the news is that Jesus is here in Capernaum. Now, a great crowd gathers together. It says in verse 2 that many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. So you have religious leaders who are there on the front row, kind of with their skepticism and maybe their inquisition, wondering, who is this guy? Is he legit? You have other people who have heard his preaching and teaching ministry. You've heard others or others have seen his healing ministry. They're all there. And in verse 3, Mark introduces a certain part of the crowd to us. It says that they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now this would have been obvious as Jesus is teaching in this house at the door, a crowd is out in front of him, perhaps, you know, scattered backwards. And people are coming with this paralytic, four men carrying a cot along But they can't get through the cot, or they can't get through the crowd with the cot to Jesus. They probably want to get to Jesus because you remember the leper? Remember he came right up to Jesus and said, if you will, you can heal me. And Jesus said, I will. And he touched him and then the healing took place. Perhaps in their mind they're thinking, we have to get this paralytic right up to Jesus so that he can touch our friend and heal him. But the crowd is too big, they can't weave through there with this man perhaps on their shoulders as they carry this cot along. So they come up with a plan. Let's get up on top of the roof. If we can't get to him from the front, perhaps we can get to him from the back. First century homes, think of them kind of boxy like stone, maybe stucco on the outside. Oftentimes, they would use their flat roof as a deck, especially during the summer to catch the Mediterranean breezes, perhaps some breezes around the Sea of Galilee there. The roof would have had beams that went across it with then poles, maybe two-inch poles that stretched across those beams. On top of the beams would have been something like thatch. You've seen that on those... Nordic-like houses, those cottages that have that thick grass on top of it, kind of hangs over the edge like a shaggy dog. On top of that, thatch would have been a mud layer that would have supported people who walked up there and used it as a deck. And Commentators say that it was pretty usual, maybe even once a year, for people to work on the deck up on top of their house, repair the cracks so that water wasn't leaking in. Well, these four men move up on top of the roof, and the text says in verse 4 that when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. The, the literal re, uh, rendering there says that they unroofed the roof that was there. It's just interesting how Mark uses that meaning that they probably broke up the mud that was on top, the dry mud, and start peeling back this thatch and start pulling off the poles that would have gone across these beams. And now there's an opening in the roof. And in verse four, it says that they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, let's just say it's your open house. Some of you have had students that have graduated, and there's a great crowd that's there, and maybe there's a line that's leading up to your student, and somebody says, forget the line. I'm jumping up on top of the roof with a chainsaw, and I'm coming through, and I'm jumping down through this hole in the roof. All of us would be a little disturbed at the audacity, the gall that somebody would have to actually do this. But here are these four men and this paralytic that are moving forward saying, we have to get next to Jesus. We have to be able to see him. And you can imagine now, all eyes are on this scene that is taking place. Ropes on each corner of the cot, lowering this paralytic down. If Jesus is at the door, perhaps he's coming down behind him. Everybody sees what's taking place. Here's a paralyzed man with a group of gutsy friends who are willing to get this guy as close to Jesus as possible. What will Jesus do? Point number two in the story, Jesus forgives sin. In verse five, Mark turns our attention to Jesus now. And in our ESV it says, and when Jesus saw, some of your translations, I like how it says, and jesus seeing this and the reason why those translations say jesus seeing this is because it's a participle and meaning this is an ongoing action we're seeing something take place (laughs) that's a disturbance it it wasn't jesus who just glanced at something he was seeing this take place this whole scenario unfold And what is it that Jesus is seeing? It says here in verse five, and Jesus seeing their faith. He saw a group of men, most noticeably a paralytic, who were moving towards Jesus in spite of all of the challenges, both real and possible. They have faith that they have to get next to Jesus. There are challenges that are in front of them. There's the challenge of the initial crowd. There's the challenge of access. There's the challenge of taking apart someone's house. There's this challenge of possibly offending people who are in in attendance there. But despite all of the challenges, all the possible repercussions, this man wanted nothing else than to be brought right to Jesus. Jesus. That's where he wanted to be because he had the faith, the belief that to be next to Jesus was the best place for him to be. It was the only place for him to be and faith compelled him past the challenges, both real and possible, that he had to be there. And it begs a question, if Jesus is seeing their faith, what is Jesus seeing in your heart today? If Jesus is watching this unfold, and his conclusion is, in spite of all of the challenges, both real and possible, I see that there is faith on display. What is Jesus seeing in your life today? Is Jesus seeing ongoing faith that he is worthy above all challenges, both real and possible? Because some of you might feel the challenge of other people in your life, like crowds in your life. What if I pursue Jesus or draw closer to him? What will my spouse think? What will my family think? What will my circle of friends think? What will the crowds think? How will they respond? Is the possibility of their frustration worth the cost of me drawing closer and closer to Jesus? Do I have that kind of faith where no matter what I might face, it's worth it to be closer to Jesus? And young people, I can't help but think that you are in such formative years right now, that these are the real challenges that you are facing. How will people look at me if I do take a step forward in faith and draw closer and closer to Jesus? What if I stand for him? What if I'm acknowledged as being next to him? What will people think? Jesus saw their faith, but what does he see in your hearts this morning? I just wanna encourage you that God can handle all of the challenges, both real and possible, and any person who has walked with Jesus for a season of time will say, it was worth it. The possible challenges and the real challenges that they have faced, any person who has walked with Jesus for a season of time will say, it's worth it, keep drawing in. So young or old, wherever you are, if you're concerned about the possible repercussions of following Jesus, The word of God and the people of God will say, it's worth it, keep going. Second, Jesus is seeing here, but he's also forgiving. The first words that Mark records coming out of Jesus' mouth as this scene is unfolding in front of us in this whole exchange is simply this in verse 5. He says, son... And the question that came to my mind is, why does Jesus use the word son? Because in Luke's gospel, Luke uses the word man. So do we have a discrepancy here? No, Luke is focused on something different than what Mark is focused on. When Mark uses the term son here, he's using it in the sense that this man has placed himself under the authority of Jesus. Jesus has now set himself in a place of authority. By calling this man son, he's like a dad who's looking down to his son, a dad who has authority, but a dad who also has benevolence and who wants to give. This is my son now who I care for. And as that paralytic is in front of Jesus who healed the leper just recently, The expected response from a loving dad would be to see these circumstances and say, I want to help my son get out of these circumstances. But what does Jesus say? Jesus, acting like a father, says to his son, the paralytic, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And that's just sort of, whoa, wait a second, Jesus. That's not what we were expecting we're expecting that this man who hasn't been able to walk perhaps since birth would be given the gift of getting his mobility back but Jesus doesn't do that he looks at the man who has come to him and he can see his faith and he says son your sins are forgiven And what Jesus is doing here is he is dealing with the man's greatest need, a need that every one of us have. The great need that we all have is the forgiveness of our sins. And what Jesus is claiming about his kingdom to the crowd right now is that he has the authority and benevolence to fix the man's greater problem. He has the authority to reach into the domain of sin and say, I can conquer this, I can forgive it. So let's ask a question here as we're just looking at this two questions. What is sin? What is sin? First John chapter 3 verse 4 says that sin is lawlessness. This is probably like the most concise definition that we can find of sin. Sin is lawlessness. Now when John uses that term lawlessness, he's not referring to the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. He's referring to God's complete law. He's referring to God's authority the authority that he has given to us in his word and sin is anything that violates what God has given to us that has violated God's law so here is maybe an extended definition sin is anything an act a word a thought a motive that violates or contradicts the will and character of God it's anything that violates or contradicts the will of char- or character of God. That's what sin is. It's looking at God who has said, I have given you a prescription for life and you are violating or breaking that law that I have given you in life. It's ultimately an act of rebellion against what God has given. And when you think about it, Andy was praying earlier and acknowledging God as the creator over all things, including us as humans. God created us with beauty and order and structure. And part of that beauty and order and structure is morality. And God has said, this is what is moral, this is how I want my creation to walk in beauty and order. Now go and do that. And any time... A human being says to God's order and structure to the Creator no I don't want to do that that is sin we might think that our sin is only unto ourselves like I can sin in a box and it doesn't affect anybody but it's not every act of sin is an act of rebellion against God sorry about that I'll try to stop twisting We are raising our prideful hearts and saying that God's authority over our lives can be cast off and we can do life better and more wisely without God's wisdom. Sin, any act of sin, is committed against God. And David recognized this. He said in Psalm 51, verses one through four, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, after he had knocked off her husband, he said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. You see him talking about sin. And notice what he says. Against you... And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Did David sin against Bathsheba? Absolutely. Did he sin against Uriah, Bathsheba's husband? Absolutely. But David recognized, no, this action is ultimately an action of rebellion against God. So our sin is anything that is a violation, a contradiction against the will and character of God. All sin is committed against God, which leads to question number two. What is the forgiveness of sin? There's several words in Scripture that are translated as forgiveness. This word here in the story, it's an interesting word. It's not the word grace that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 4, like God forgives us, he graces us with sin. This word here in Mark chapter 2, forgiveness has the idea of canceling or sending something away. It was also used in the context of canceling out someone's debts or releasing someone from debt. So sin is like a moral debt that we have accumulated against God. And Jesus is now declaring that the paralytic, his greatest need is that his debt against God, his moral debt against God, would be taken care of. It would be sent away, it would be erased or canceled. But again, whom is all sin committed against? It's committed against God. So I grew up with two brothers, and I've got a younger sister that's 14 years younger, but two brothers. My younger brother is 17 months younger than me. And for some reason, I don't know why, he and I did most of the fighting. We all fought, but he and I did most of the fighting. Dan is his name. Ben is my older brother. He's two years older than me. We probably didn't fight so much because he was two years older and that much stronger, so maybe a little bit closer in in age and strength with me and my younger brother. So we'd fight. We would punch each other. We knew that the face was off limits, but anything else was fair game. So if we were mad at each other and if I punched Dan, we all know that... Ben couldn't come over to me and say, now, Nate, I forgive you for what you did. Ben can't forgive because I haven't done anything to Ben. If he did, he'd be cocky and misinformed about things. The only one who can forgive me for what I've done is my brother Dan here. I need Dan to come and forgive me. He needs to forgive me for the sin that I've committed against him. So when Jesus makes this statement to the paralytic who has come down through the ceiling, and he's looking at his greatest needs, and he says, your sins are forgiven, do you understand what Jesus is saying about himself? If all sin is committed against God, he's saying, I am the one whom you've sinned against. I am God here in the flesh which our Jehovah's Witness friends need to know. And you can take them to this chapter here and say, hey, here is Jesus. You believe God forgives sins? Here is Jesus who forgives sins. And so here's Jesus, this man who is saying, I am forgiving your sins. And the leaders, the religious elite that are right on the front row taking all this in, they start, I mean, they're going nuts now. It says in verse six, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So point number three, Jesus confuses the leaders. Jesus confuses the leaders. Now the leaders are right. They're correct that only God can forgive sins. But they're wrong now in that they haven't made the connection that this man in front of them is the Son of God, which Mark is, remember, this is part of his argument from Mark 1, verse 1. That Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, is here. And so Mark is giving us a little window like, hey, be aware of what's going on. And the leaders are like, this is nuts. This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. They're right. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Double the grace, double the forgiveness here. Psalm 130, verses 3 through 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. God and God alone forgives. He's the only one who can forgive their sin. So we move on to point number four. Jesus proves that he is God. Jesus proves that he is God. So with the leaders having this conniption, thinking that Jesus is blaspheming, verse eight, it says that immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit, there's omniscience there, that they thus question within themselves. Jesus says to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Hmm. Why are you struggling with this? Now, which is easier, he asks the leaders, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and take up your bed and walk. So the attention has gone from the paralytic back here to the religious leaders over here And he knows what's going on in their minds, this guy's a blasphemer. He's calling himself God. He can't be God. Okay, men, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven, which I've just said, or to say, take up your bed and walk? Well, of course, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no external evidence. It's just a declarative statement. There's like no receipt that comes out of heaven magically appears when sins are forgiven. These are just words that are spoken. So what's actually harder is to say now in front of this crowd to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed and walk. Because if you don't do that, then I'm not who I say I am. And this whole ministry of Jesus walking around Galilee is just empty. It's a sham. So Jesus turns now to the paralytic who still hasn't been healed of his physical ailment. And he turns to him, and he says with three imperatives, now, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, pause. One more Old Testament verse that is just ringing in the minds of these religious leaders comes to us from Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 says this, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. These are verses about this coming deliverer. Now notice what happens and notice the characteristic of this deliverer. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And notice this. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Do you see the religious leaders are like, if this guy can heal that paralytic we're talking about a lame man leaping up for joy we're saying that the kingdom of god is splashing out on us right now it's here it's present so jesus proves it and he turns to the man and he says i say to you rise pick up your bed and walk if this happens It validates Jesus' claims. Isaiah's prophecies are coming true right in front of them. And notice what happens. Verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Slam dunk, case closed. Jesus proves who he is. He's God. In the flesh, in front of them, the kingdom is coming and splashing out on them. They had never seen anything like it. The question is were they getting the real message? Three applications Are you and I getting the message? Question number one Are you and I getting the message of this text? Keep in mind, Mark has started with this defining statement in chapter 1 that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Then in verse 14, Jesus' first words are repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus is doing these miracles to send a message. And it climaxes here with this miracle. And what is the climax of the miracle? Is it that a lame man can walk? No, it's not. The climax of the miracle is that Jesus has the authority and the benevolence alone to forgive sins. Jesus alone has the authority and the benevolence to forgive sins. That's what Mark is proving through these strings of miracles that he has put together and climaxed here with Jesus' statement, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.'" The healing proves that Jesus' words are validated. Are you and I getting the message, only Jesus has the authority and benevolence to forgive sins? Application number two, again in the form of a question. Are we seeing our greatest need? Are we seeing our greatest need? Now think about this god sees that our greatest need is not circumstantial our greatest need is spiritual in nature our greatest need is not that life will go well for us for the paralytic his greatest need was not that he would be able to walk for the scribes the priests the religious leaders who were there their greatest need was not that everyone would follow the rabbinic codes the greatest need for everyone in the story, the greatest need for everyone in history is that we would have our sins canceled and forgiven. But we so badly can be distracted by our circumstances. We so badly want our circumstances to be worked out. We so badly want our housing issue to be taken care of. And they are real issues, just as real as the paralysis was. We so badly want our health issues to be resolved. We so badly want our job situation to be fixed. We so badly want the relationship to be taken care of. All of those things are real, but Jesus did not come to give us better ease filled lives. And if he did, we would probably be miserable people who got everything that we wanted. Our greatest need is not a circumstantial need of having an ease-filled life. Our greatest need is spiritual in nature. And if you think about it, if this paralytic came to Jesus and all Jesus did was say, yes, rise, take up your bed and walk and healed him, that paralytic man may have lived for another two, three, four decades, but he would have spent the last 2,000 years possibly in hell and into eternity future. The greatest need for all of us is that we would have our sins forgiven. And when we see that this Jesus, this Messiah, is the only one by whom sins can be forgiven, we can only come to him and draw in closer and closer. There was a lady who was writing for a New York newspaper. Her name is Cynthia Heimel. And I don't think she was writing as a Christian, she was just writing as an observer about people who got what they wanted. Their circumstances started to work out for them. Speaking of celebrities, she says, I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed. The morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing that they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, That was going to make their lives bearable that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness it had happened and nothing changed they were still them the disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable i think when god wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you he grants you your deepest wish and some of us are so bent on getting Our circumstances worked out, but you will be the same person then as you are now. The greatest need that we have is spiritual in nature. And are these circumstances real? Yes, they are real. And we can't take away from any of that. But when they become our ultimate goal in life, we've missed Jesus. Jesus we've missed the hope that we can have in jesus so can we see that our deepest need is the forgiveness of sins against god and that when we have this forgiveness with god we are in relationship with him the guilt that we have no longer has to hang around our neck there might be some here this morning who have just sins that you know just keep talking from the past if you are in christ Christian, that debt has been canceled on your account. It was placed on Jesus at the cross, and you are forgiven. Do you have circumstances? Yes. Do the, some of those circumstances come with the sins that you committed? Yes. But that sin does not define you anymore. Forgiveness is that grace that Jesus has given is now on your account. Question number three, and in closing. Are we enjoying the gift of God's forgiveness? Are we enjoying the gift of God's forgiveness? Like I just said, guilt can hang like a heavy ball and chain around so many people's lives. But the wonderful news that we know is that Jesus, through the word of God, which teaches us, releases us from that debt against him. It was a debt that none of us could ever pay back. The things that you said in the past to your children the acts that you've committed against other people in life, the selfishness that you demonstrated, the thoughts, the motives, all of those things that you have done in the past, if you are a Christian, your sin is forgiven. And Jesus is the only one who has the authoritative right to carry that out in your life. And Paul brings this up, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, where it says that God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So when Jesus went to the cross, the debt of your sin was nailed to the cross in Jesus. Psalm 103 verses 1 through 3. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and forget not all of His benefits. And what is His first benefit? Who forgives all your iniquity. So you might be going forward in life, and you might be a perfectionist. You might even be a people pleaser. And you might say, I I can't be accepted because of what I have done in the past. Here's what we accept by faith, that all of those sins have been forgiven now by God. All the hatred, all the bitterness, all the secret lies, all the selfish acts, Every sin that you have committed, Christian, against God has been forgiven. So you are free from those debt of sins. And God doesn't look at you as a debtor to him anymore. He looks at you as a son who can have a relationship with him. Here's more grace. Here's more benevolence. Let's walk in relationship with one another. Enjoy that benefit that God is not staring over like the edge of heaven looking at you saying, you better make it up some more to me. He's already made it up. It's done. But non-Christian, what about you? What about you? You will never be able to erase your sins, no matter how many good works you do. It's only through Jesus. And so I just ask, even right now, in your heart, would you be walking towards Jesus? Would you be coming to Jesus this morning like that paralytic Would you be coming with the faith that only Jesus can meet my greatest need? Because only he can. So take some time this week, Christian. Take some time this week to just enjoy the forgiveness that God has given to you in Jesus. Let's pray. With your heads bowed, Perhaps you're a Christian, and you're just ready to thank God for his forgiveness. Um, Maybe sin has been like a guilt weighing on you, and you've truly repented. You can see your checkered past, nothing to be proud of. If you could do it all over again, you would, and you'd learn from those things, and you wouldn't do those sins anymore we're all there just in the quietness of your heart can you thank god for his forgiveness he has canceled all of that non-christian if god is at work in your heart and you're starting to see that this jesus truly is the savior the messiah the deliverer even right now just in the quietness of your heart You see your sin, you can acknowledge your sin. And you cry out to God in faith just saying, God, please save me, I'm a sinner. I trust in Jesus as the one who gives forgiveness for sins. Talk to the Lord in the quietness of your heart. I'll come back and pray. God we thank you for your kindness to us who can forgive sins but God alone we trust that thank you for the work that you've done in our lives we pray that we would never become numb to that great work we pray that collectively as a church we would have a heart of worship of disposition towards you that is thankful continually for what you've done and meeting our greatest needs for those who are still seeking looking thinking considering we just pray in humility that you would continue to move move us all along please draw people to yourself in Jesus name we pray amen